0: I think a funny thing about Rapper's Delight for me is that I didn't hear it until, you know, well into hip hop fandom in part because, you know, I was born a few years after it came out. And when I came into loving rap music, it was the early 90s, most prominently. And it just wasn't a part of the dialogue and the place I was at. You know, my my family didn't play it. My brother was very. My oldest brother was very much an old school hip hop head who did not listen to Sugar Hill Gang. You know, like like many people, the song was the song, and after that they kind of uh, faded. But it wasn't a big. It wasn't really in my organ. So the single "Rappers Delight" came out in in 1979, but the full length album that hosted that single came out early in 1980. Sugar Hill Gang, in a lot of ways, actually, was probably ill-equipped to make a full album. And so that is why I think it's important to talk about the merits of the album in terms of importance instead of quality. Because while they were not necessarily equipped to create an album of rapping, they kind of had to. You know, at the start of, of many evolutions is kind of just someone who is willing to fall on the grenade so to speak and kind of step out into some uncharted territory and, and make something that shows other people that it can be done in preparation for this piece I knew I had to reach out to Dart Adams who's a hip-hop historian he is just an encyclopedia of knowledge and you know someone I think I often turn to when I want to ask the question of, Okay, is this history as I remember it correct or am I just remembering it the way I want to remember it, you know? Um, and the conversation with Dart will be after this piece. DJ please. pick up your phone I'm on the request line. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib from KCRW. This is Lost Notes, 1980. The Sugar Hill Gang. With any luck, It might one day be safe and comfortable for people to congregate. To gather in small, tightly packed rooms and relieve their bodies of some sweat. To praise at the once familiar altar of touch, of dancing somewhere other than in front of their own mirrors to their own playlists. When that day comes, there will be house parties, or basement dances where the DJ will be whoever hooks their phone up to a speaker, or whoever agonized over a selection of songs to play before leaving their home. In other places, the DJ might be the person who is willing to string together the most hits in a consecutive order. When I was coming up, I was known for having a feel for what to play. I didn't have records or a turntable. This was in the iPod era. Where DJing a house party sometimes meant you crammed yourself into a corner and whipped your thumb around in a circle, glancing up occasionally to take stock of the room. What people need and what they didn't want any more of. Maybe pausing in between a typhoon of hit songs to sneak in something riskier for your own sake. The industry's filled with copycats, on be mixed with sloppy raps. Tribes like us always open doors, but what for, so you can get yours? At those parties and at ones I spent time at in the years after. Rap music was the most common vehicle carrying a room towards its exuberant crescendo. And not just the beats themselves, even though the sometimes familiar sample might encourage a leap from a chair or a couch onto the waiting dance floor. It was sometimes the lyrics, the rhymes that people grew up with and came to know, the memorable lines that people craved finishing alongside someone else who maybe knew the line and craved finishing it, the... It was all a dream, or Don't be a hard rock when you really are a gem. Lately, I have been thinking of this communal reconstruction of song and how I miss it. Maybe by the time you hear this, those magical moments will once again be flourishing throughout dorm hallways and homes and clubs all through America. But for now, I haven't been able to stop thinking about how I've come to understand the lyric or the work of the MC as a source of shared communion. A beat is what loosens the limbs, of course, but I love when a song pauses so that an eager crowd can finish a line. This is rap music as I've come to understand it and know it. I was born in the early 80s. By the time I first started hearing and discovering rap music, it was at the end of that decade, tumbling into the start of the 90s. Rap was in the midst of another golden era. MCs were larger than life personalities, and even when paired with spectacular DJs, the MC was the one who got the most face time. There were DJs who rarely spoke, who didn't enjoy nearly as much camera time, even though their skill set was immense. Take someone like the legendary DJ Jazzy Jeff who, despite being massive in his own right, would sometimes be eclipsed by the immense personality of the Fresh Prince, Will Smith.
1: We just bugging. we just having some fun. Me and Jeffrey, he's the DJ, I'm the rapper. Rapper, rapper, rapper.
0: Hello. Can anybody hear me? Of course, there were also MCs who knew where their bread was buttered. Those who would make songs in tribute to their DJs. LL Cool J's Go Cut Creator Go, or Rakim's Eric B. Is President. Terminator exit. Terminator exit. But audiences, by that point, have been trained to focus in on the MC. For people who love and know hip-hop now, It might be difficult to imagine a hip-hop landscape where the MC was secondary, but at the inception of the culture, the DJ was the star. The DJ held all the power because it was a DJ who held, at their fingertips, the ability to persuade people to move. In the 70s, people came to hear DJs spin, to hear them cut up familiar records, tear apart old sounds and reshape them into something fresher, packing dance parties that pushed through the nighttime until the sunrise teased the sky. Back then, the role of the MC was, quite literally, to be a master of ceremonies. The MC's role was much like that of a boxer's hype man, pumping up the crowd by way of extolling the DJ's virtues. When the evening seemed to reach its peak, or if the crowd seemed to be giving in to the exhaustion, the MC would hop on the mic and pump the crowd back up. The to be to it is important to understand that the birth of hip-hop and the birth of rap music itself are two different things. The former allowed for the latter, of course, but hip-hop, as a culture, began to bubble up in the early 70s. Hip-hop was, first, about gathering, a mode of political expression among marginalized youth in New York, fluorescent, looping graffiti tagging the city's subways, people breaking in hallways, on streets, at house parties, and, of course, at the genesis of it all, was the DJ. DJs like Cool Herc in nineteen seventy three began tinkering with dual turntables and mixers as a way to extend beats and isolate percussion breaks.
1: Clear the area, please! Right in front of the pistachio.
0: For this reason, Some people couldn't fathom a world where an MC or a group of MCs took center stage. That began to shift as the 70s wore on, and came to a head as the 70s turned over into the 80s. A big part of this happened at the hands of producers, managers, and husband and wife team Sylvia and Joe Robinson. The couple founded Sugar Hill Records in 1979, named after the Sugar Hill neighborhood in Harlem. The first record on the label was a song, Rapper's Delight. It became the first top 40 hip-hop single. Check it out, I'm the C-A-S-N, the O and the rest is F-L-Y. You see, I go by the code of the doctor of the mix, and these reasons I'll tell you why. You see, I'm six foot one, and I'm tons of fun, and I guess to a T. You see, I got more clothes than Muhammad Ali, and I dress so viciously. It was recorded by the Sugarhill Gang, a group of three MCs that were assembled by the Robinsons with the goal of making a rap song that pushed MCs to the forefront. Big Bank Hank, Wonder Mike, and Master G were all from Inglewood, New Jersey. Just before Sugarhill started, Big Bank Hank worked at a pizza shop and managed the Cold Crush Brothers on the side. All right, now we right. in
1: Cold Crush Brothers, we're here to represent my man, D.J., Shelly. And the cool
0: Sylvia Robinson had heard about hip hop from her son and was on the lookout for rappers who might want to form a group. When she overheard Big Bang Hank kicking some of the Cold Crush Brothers rhymes, she knew she had him in. The group found instant success with the single and in 1980. There was an album on the horizon. An album of rapping at the time seemed implausible, without commercial viability. Throughout the 70s, there were mixtapes of audio from parties where DJs would rock and MCs would move the crowd. This seemed to suffice until the Sugar Hill Gang came along with Rapper's Delight. And so, in the early months of 1980, a six song, nearly 40 minute album by a rap group was released. I'm scientific, the kid terrific, the mastermind, the cosmic mystic, I'm the master G with the phenomenon, rapping to the rhythm on and on, I'm a devastating rapper with a thunder rap, rapping into the beat, I like it like that, the rap I have controls your will, which is typical of Sugar Hill, you go. The debut, self-titled album by the Sugar Hill Gang wasn't received without controversy, it wasn't received without skepticism.
1: Everybody out here familiar with this, the rapper's delight shit. Oh yeah.
0: But what you may not know, uh uh-huh. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. What you may not know is that that stuff originated right here. Me, myself, the Grandmaster Cas. I'm going to show you right about now. You tell me which
1: one sounds for real. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it the way I made it up. I'm C A S A N casa and the rest is F L Y. I got a Ph.D. in Of that fact, you can't deny.
0: When one considers some of the greatest rap albums of all time, I wouldn't imagine much of anyone would mention the first Sugar Hill album that splashed into the opening part of a new decade, brimming with possibility. When one thinks about the greatest rap groups of all time, Sugar Hill Gang might be an afterthought. Hard to imagine the relevance of them or their first album at any point after the mid 80s when hip hop had embraced the MC, when new labels with more vision sprouted up to swallow Sugar Hill Records, which was buried in litigation and controversy before it shut down in
1: 1986. Stop, but, the band band. See, the the the
0: but sometimes, Legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame the spark causes, even if the spark is forgotten as the fire grows. In the end, there was a time before Sugarhill Gang made a rap album, and there was a time after. And if not for the release of that record in 1980, maybe someone else might've done it. An album of rapping might've come in another year. Some other producer looking for a buck might have put the pieces together to cash in on the then still emerging trend. But maybe not for years. Maybe not at all. Either way, the history of rap music as we know it would have shifted. The rappers who came up in the 70s and 80s and made their biggest splashes in the 90s might have had their careers altered, their inspirations limited. On the other side of the imperfect Sugar Hill Gang and their imperfect quest to get rap music on the charts is a familiar room, with a rap song everyone knows all the words to. Lyrics being kicked over an old instrumental in a car's back seat. Impromptu freestyle battles at lunch with closed fists and open palms beating a rhythm out on a table's surface. There is language forming a chain with other language until it makes a speaker feel limitless. Lost Notes, 1980 was written and performed by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The senior producer for Lost Notes is Mike dodge Weisskopf. The show's creator and executive producer is Nick White. He also edited this piece. KCRW's USC Luminary Fellow is Victoria Alejandro, and she provided production support for the series. Special thanks to Alex Saria, Kristen Lepore, David Weinberg, Adria Clokey, and Dart Adams. Also, to Christopher Ho, Drew Tewksbury, Rachel Gertz, and so many others at KCRW who helped bring this show to life. We have some exclusive photos on our website of the Sugar Hill Gang in 1980, They're by Laura Levine. Go find them at kcrw.com/lostnotes. You can also go to KCRW's website to listen to excerpts from my conversation with Regan Summer McCoy, the founder of the Mixtape Museum, at On Air Fest in Brooklyn on March 8, 2020. Summer and I talked before a live audience about the early history of hip-hop. Special thanks to Reagan Summer McCoy, Gemma Brown, Scott Newman, and Sam Baer for their help making that conversation happen. This piece was informed in part by a conversation I had with Dart Adams, a music writer and hip-hop historian from Boston, Massachusetts. Stick around to hear our interview.
1: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled,
0: This is Lost Notes, 1980. This is an extra conversation to accompany my story about Sugar Hill Gang. I'm speaking with Dart Adams, a music writer and hip-hop historian from Boston, Massachusetts. Longtime listeners of Lost Notes may remember Dart from the episode about New Edition in the show's first season. Dart joins me today to talk about the legacy of the Sugar Hill Gang and their importance to the early history of hip-hop. So in 1979, we got to start... Before 1980, it was Sugar Hill Gang. What was the state of hip-hop in its kind of relative infancy in the late 70s, particularly 1979?
1: Hip-hop evolved from, i say, 1973, 74 on. But rap in particular uh, really began to emerge between 1976 and 77 into the thing as we know it now. It started out with the evolution of um, Grandmaster Flash and the three MCs. His three MCs being um, Keith Keith, Keith Cowboy, uh, Melly Mel, and his brother, the Kid Creole. The Glover Brothers, as they were known, they started out as B-Boys going to different jams, and then they developed a style of MCing. They call it nonstop rapping, and then they would go back and forth seamlessly, whereas um, Keith Keith, Cowboy, was the guy who really got the crowd into it, made everybody say, ho, throw your hands in the air, wave them from side to side, and then they did their rhymes together. And they created pretty much the aesthetic for other MC crews. You had to compete with what Grandmaster Flash, his wings, and the three MCs were doing. Eventually, the three MCs became five MCs over time, and then they became the Furious Five. And they pretty much set the tone. They were the gold standard for MCs supporting a DJ. Because, again, everybody came out for the DJ.
0: Right. And because of that, rap like rap songs weren't getting recorded.
1: Yeah. Well, because the whole point of having MCs was to entertain the crowd who came to see the DJ spin. So the focus right. wasn't on MCs. So if you say, I want to do a record... No one could fathom what that meant because essentially what you're saying is that you want to record a party and there there were party tapes already. There were tapes of jams. There were tapes of clashes, but you want to make a record of what? Because people didn't have it in their head that the MCs, the focus, and we're going to do a song.
0: What changed? What made it logical, right? Because like you said, the party tapes, I mean, you know, and those tapes of jams are out there and we're circulating back then really heavily. So Mm -hmm. people who weren't there were still kind of getting uh, and continued to circulate on radio and beyond, beyond, in the years beyond that. But what changed? What was the catalyst for someone saying, let's lay out a song?
1: It's really simple. Um, Capitalism. Uh, (laughs) uh, What happened was two people in particular who were in the scene but came from the old doo-wop soul R&B era who had labels already happened upon rap slash hip-hop culture, they were Bobby Robinson of Enjoy Records and uh, Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill Records, which I believe was all platinum before. So what ends up happening is at a birthday party, somebody rhymes for a Sylvia. And she's astounded, taken away. And she's like, wow, why hasn't somebody put this on record yet? And the, th- the thing is that She's at a, a a party and like basically they're rhyming for her. It's a completely different focus than we're just rocking the party and the focus is the DJ. She's not there for the DJ. She's not one of the kids tr- trying to go to the floor waiting for a break. So her uh, reference point is completely different. And plus, she's a businesswoman. She's an entrepreneur and she's a producer. So she automatically leaps to... Why isn't this on record? And it's the same thing that Bobby Robinson and Enjoy did, not too far away, um, no relation. So right. that's how we get the first rap records. In in
0: 1979, particularly by the end of 1979, uh, you know, Rappers Delight was everywhere. They were on, they played on Soul Train. They were mm-hmm. kind of massive in the pop consciousness. Absolutely. How were they received and respected in in the hip hop and rap world?
1: Okay, so this is what's crazy. When Sugar Hill Gang emerges, we have to keep this in mind. The hip-hop community is pretty much in New York's boroughs, centralized in the Bronx in New York. But you have Queens, Brooklyn, you have some cats in Manhattan, you have Harlem. That's where the Crash Crew is from. So it's spread out. But hip-hop had spread to five different spots because... New York is in close proximity. It's in the tri-state area. So it's in close proximity to New Jersey and Connecticut, which then puts it in close proximity to Philadelphia, parts of Philadelphia and um, Pennsylvania, and then spreads to Boston. So that's where the entire hip-hop world was located. I was getting tapes as a kid, and my brother and sister were as care packages from relatives in New Jersey and, and New York. So the hip hop community is small and there are very few groups people know about. And if you're not in New York, you don't see flyers for jams. So you don't know what the names of every group and or crew are. All you know is who's on the tape, who's on that tape that was sent to you. Right. And then in 1979, the circle of active uh, hip hop crews and even soloists are Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five. The Cold Crush Brothers, The Treacherous Three, The Fantastic Five, a.k.a. The Fantastic Freaks, um, Crash Crew, Master Dom and the Death Committee, Soul Sonic Force, or Enter Zulu Kings and Queens, Debbie D, what have you, Lisa Lee, Funky Four, or the Funky Four Plus One More, depending on what year it is, the Mercedes Ladies, and Soloist, you have Curtis Blow, DJ Hollywood, Eddie Chiba, Busy B, Love Bug Starsky, and, you know, down the line, you have, like, the lower tier people. So that's the entire hip-hop world as far as we know. So the Sugar Hill Gang coming out with a record, if you're not in New York, you just accept it because, hey, they're on a record. They got to be dope, even though dope wasn't the word we used back then. So we just accepted it because they were on record, you know? We didn't factor in all the things that it took to be on a record or who you had to know <laughs> to get recorded all we knew is that rap is something that wasn't on record and now it's on record. So if they're on a record, then they have to be good, I guess.
0: <laughs> right. Um, did you, I mean, when you heard them, did you think they were good when you first heard them?
1: Yeah. Well, also, we have to keep in mind, too. Rap, early on, 77, 78, 79. While there were people that were deftly skilled, yeah, we figured that if you got on a mic, you had to be nice. Or have some level of cachet To even be rapping in the first place Because if you were trash How'd you get on the mic In New York Right But we didn't know That the Sugar Hill Gang Weren't from New York You know We had no clue That they were a bunch of people From Englewood, New Jersey Who had completely stepped the line And in New York People were pissed about it We didn't find that out until later by that time it was already the biggest record in the world and getting bootlegged heavily to the point where people didn't know how many copies are sold. That's nineteen eighty.
0: Let's talk a bit about uh Sugar Hill Records, which folded in, in the mid eighties because there was, you know, competition from other hip hop labels. There was but also Sugar Hill Records just kind of notoriously was a mess in some oh, ways. Absolutely. Um, and and was like just not long for this world in any capacity because of how it was running all that. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Sugar Hill Records.
1: Sure. Um, Sugar Hill Records was prominent in the rap music world because, again, they had some very shrewd and intense business people behind it. Their practices might have been questionable, but they knew what they were doing to a degree. Sugar Hill, in concert with, even though I don't think they knew it, Bobby Robinson and Joy Records were the first labels to do recon. And what I mean by that is they went, they sent people that knew, and then they sent their own people, and then they did their own investigation into the rap slash hip-hop world. And they realized something. Um, The DJs are the focus of the culture, and it's not an industry. The DJs are the focus. The rappers are who we want to get on record. Rappers don't get paid nearly enough And when they do get paid, oftentimes they have to kick down their money to the DJ to maintain the sound system. And also, the thing is that the power was skewed because the MCs only had their draw because people came to see the DJ. So what everybody realized, Bobby Robinson included, Bobby Robinson, Sylvia, everybody included, was that if we pay the rappers, we can sign them to a deal. And they realized that rappers make probably like $25, $50 on average per show. If we pay them anywhere between 25 to 50 shows of money at once to teenagers in the Bronx in 79, 80, 81, then we can reap untold benefits and reap financial gain from them. So that's what they did. They signed MCs. And the MCs would turn around and they'd be like, oh, "We are, we we signed a deal." The DJ would have to end up being like the tour DJ, but the record they'd play was the studio band, Sugar Hill Studio Band, and that's the same thing Enjoy did. So what happened was Enjoy would make money because they would sign an act, sign them, pay them once, not pay them again. And then Sylvia would show up and be like, hey, um, y'all unhappy over here at Enjoy? Fine. We're going to buy y'all out of y'all deal, pay you, and now you're going to be with Sugar Hill where all the dope rappers are. And that was what they did. Uh, Sugar Hill went under because they got sued a bunch of times. And the time they went under in 85 is specifically because they got sued by 99 Records and Liquid Liquid. For making white lines. And it's insane. Because they went under. 99 went under. And 99 went under. Because Sugar Hill. (laughs) Filed for bankruptcy. So 99 went under. Because they never got any money from Sugar Hill. Even though they were supposed to be awarded over half a million dollars. You know. And it was just like bad business practices all over. But also the rap industry was changing. And they were not going to be able to compete with Profile. They weren't going to be able to compete with. Um. Tommy Boy, they weren't going to be able to compete with Def Jam. And that's ultimately what it came down to. These young, upstart record labels were putting out better product by more contemporary artists, and the rap music landscape was changing. And Sylvia did not have, she wasn't prepared for that. Legacy-wise, you know, I I
0: think my approach with, with writing so much of these Lost Notes 1980 things is thinking also about the legacy of these artists be it like Joy Division or McKay, who else, whoever else and I think Sugar Hill Gang is maybe the trickiest one to approach yeah, um, because like a lot of these a lot of the, the early rap acts I think it's really hard for people now to put their legacy in a decent perspective in part because of how the music sounded and how far I think we are from that sound in a lot of ways and also because I think it's just hard for people to conceptualize rap music that was happening before like, 83 in some ways.
1: Yeah. I think the real issue with Sugar Hill Gang, as far as their, um, people having trouble trying to figure out what their legacy is, has to do with their place in hip-hop culture at the time they blew up. The thing about Sugar Hill Gang is they are mired in controversy. They made the first big rap song, the song that put the art form and the genre on the map By one, being a group that wasn't from the Bronx or Queens or Brooklyn or Manhattan, being a crew that didn't battle or compete on the stage with the other prominent rap groups at the time, didn't show up at a clash, weren't on a flyer. They didn't build their uh, fan base. People weren't coming from New Jersey to come to Manhattan to see them go against the Treacherous Three or battle the Crash Crew. That didn't exist. They never faced Treacherous Three until they were in the studio together at Sugar Hill. And the fact that they were from Englewood, New Jersey, which was outside of, you know, the acceptable range of where you had to be to be a rap crew. So they were looked down upon by all the other prominent Rap crews and and you know the fans are dancing so they don't really care but the thing is that they blow up off of rapper's delight where the inside of the hip-hop community were listening to it like that's my line that's my line that's my line those are my bars I said that that's mine that's a homeboys uh he took that that's from um home that's from this person that's from pebbly Pooh and there was an entire section that was from Grandmaster Kaz. One of the three linchpins of why MT even exists to this day are Melly Mel, later Grandmaster Melly Mel, Grandmaster Kaz, who was initially DJ Casanova Fly, and the other one being a young man by the name of Cool D, of the Treacherous Three. These three dudes essentially elevated the art form between 1976 and 1979 so that we have emceeing today. That being said, people hearing rapper's delight and being like, that's my line. That's all Kaz. Immediately screws them up in terms of where their legacy is in terms of the culture. However, when we step back without the fact that Sylvia, Sylvia, Actually just said, I'm just going to audition rappers in New Jersey and stumble upon Big Bank Hank, who was in a pizza shop, or uh, reciting rhymes from other people, you know. And then when they did the audition process, kept saying the same rhymes while everybody else was freestyling and coming up with new stuff. If it wasn't for that fact, or he didn't say, hey, I know Grandmaster Caz. won't you put Kaz on the record? If it wasn't for that, then yeah, their legacy would be different. But the fact remains is without Sugar Hill Gang Rapper's Delight, we're not having this interview right now. I'm not sitting here as a hip hop historian about a culture. I'm sitting across from a whole bunch of books about rap and hip hop. I'm just looking at them right now. I have two on my desk right now. And who knows what would have happened if this song didn't blow up in the holiday season of 1979-80 just as Curtis Blow puts out Christmas rapping, you know, just as uh, Wendley Records puts on his daughters rapping and rocking the house you know, like Lady B, It's My Beat we don't know what happens without that being the first song to take this to another level and bring it to the consciousness of the mainstream
0: Does it also help to some degree that that Sugar Hill Gammy you mentioned it they're kind of just dudes, you know what I mean uh, for better or worse. Of course, they were dudes who were pulling from other rappers, but I know a lot of rappers of that area are kind of era just were kind of just dudes, but it fed into this idea that this was an art form for the people.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's beautiful at the same time that you have all of this culture. You have all these MCs, all these crews, all these DJs in New York, and the record that blows comes out of Englewood, New Jersey. You know? And the thing is that what made Sugar Hill Gang bonafide after the fact was that they were the big act on Sugar Hill, which was the main rap label before, you know, Def Jam emerges, you know, after Tommy Boy, after Profile, after a few other labels, Spring, what have you. And, um, you know, they start doing songs with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. They're on the same label as the Crash Crew. They're on the same label as Funky Four Plus One More. They're doing reviews and tours with them. They put out Apache, Eighth Wonder. So when you think about it, Sugar Hill Gang ends up being official. Like the West Street mob, people are like, where's West Street? There's no West Street, New York. It didn't matter because if it came out with that Sugar Hill label on it, and you look at the other artists that are on Sugar Hill, it's official. It's official. Treacherous three were on Sugar Hill after they got sold by Bobby Robinson from Enjoy. So, you know, what are you going to do after the fact? Be like, oh, they ain't real, but you look at who they're doing. They did Showdown. What can you say after you hear Showdown? They're all on the same stage. They're all on the same mic. They're all on the same record. It is what it is.
0: That was Dart Adams, a music journalist and historian from Boston, Massachusetts. Check out Dart's own podcast, Dart Against Humanity. This is Hanif Abdurraqib, and this has been Moss Notes 1980 Sugar Hill Gang. Thank you for listening.